have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Math or Mark, excuse me, Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, and that is page 721 in our church Bibles, if that would be of help to you. Mark chapter 15, and as many of you know, we've been working verse by verse for quite a while through Mark's Gospel. We're almost at the end, not yet, but we're almost there. And in just a moment, I'm going to read the first 15 verses, having covered the first five verses last Sunday. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Very early in the morning, Mark chapter 15, verse 1, the chief priests with the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate? knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray, please. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Bible, the truth of your sovereignty. Otherwise, we'd be left to ourselves. Or as in the case of this reading, the dictates of evil people and the foolishness of the crowds. And so, God, we plead, I plead with you, knowing my position is absolutely hopeless, if you're going to leave me to myself, that the Holy Spirit would enable me to speak and us to understand, that you would convict and convert in order that we can rejoice as one people in the finished work of Jesus Christ, to be captured by the beauty of Jesus, by the majesty, by the glory, the authority, and the nobility of the Lord Jesus Christ. To leave here going, there is no man like Jesus. So we're going to need grace for you to fix our eyes on him. And we're going to need your spirit to teach us this text. Nothing more, nothing less. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in 2002, Robert Mitchell wrote the book, Markets, Mobs, and Mayhem. Subtitle, A Modern Look at the Madness of the Crowds. And this book took the reader on a historical tour through cultural, global, economic, business history to explore, listen carefully, the negative phenomenon of crowd psychology, to explore the negative uh, phenomenon of group think and its effects on culture. And his whole argument is taking historical accounts, historical data, to paint this picture that more often than not, the collective crowd behaves like a mob, and they're not right, but they're wrong. Now, in reaction to this, two years later came the book, The Wisdom of Crowds, written by New Yorker businessman James Sirwowiki. That's how you say it. 
And what he did is he explored the idea that large groups of people are smarter than elite few, no matter how brilliant the elite few are. Therefore, crowds are better at solving problems, fostering innovation, coming to the truth and making wise decisions, and even predicting the future. Collaboration is the key, he writes. And if we did this more, then more problems would be solved, our world a far, far better place. Now, the reaction to this book came from places you may or you may not expect, but specifically two places which a long time ago were friends, science and Christianity, because science as we understand it today began right after the Reformation, and they were in, in unison with so much of it. So scientists and theologians, although they're not really friends now, they kind of broke up, but around this article, they became friends again temporarily. And some even blogged together, at least around this point, because scientists were saying, science is not a democracy. And theologians were saying, yeah, and truth is not a democracy either. Collective crowds cannot adjudicate, they cannot make a judgment or give a ruling on the truth of science and the truth of theology. Both then were saying, in our fields, there is objective truth. There are guiding principles, which will always be true, listen carefully, even if 26,000 out of 26,001 people who were brought into a room to decide this matter say it's not true. You understand that? Finally, not to be outdone, the online publication Medium, which I read all the time. I commend it to you. It's really neat. Anyway, Frederico Ast, A-S-T, he wrote an article in 2015, and this is what he suggested. He said, at this point in our history, our judicial system should expand from just a few people in a room, a jury, to thousands of people online, a kind of judicial crowdsourcing. This is what his question was. Can advances in information technology be leveraged to increase the truth sensitivity of courts? That's an interesting word, truth sensitivity. What would a judicial process look like if its fundamental concern were finding the truth with the massive tools available today? That's remarkable if you think about it. On one level, one would only have to think that many people these days are tried, convicted, and condemned on social media with no real trial at all, all the time. Right? The likes have spoken. If there's enough likes, then they must be right. Now, no matter what side a person leans towards in this matter, there can be no doubt that the crowds in Mark chapter 15 absolutely blew it. Call it the collective wisdom of the crowds. Call it crowdsourcing, whatever you want to call it. They blew it. Put a bunch of broken people in a room. Unless you have some guiding principle to yield to, you're sunk which makes me want to remind you what we began with last time. Mark is doing this brilliantly, one by one in these final chapters. He's been showing us again and again that those who come into contact with Jesus, having to decide about Jesus, reveal what all men and women are by nature. They are the enemies of Christ. And this gospel then is acting like a dirt-revealing mirror of every human heart and every in the entire human race. So what I want to say to you and suggest to you is if you don't see yourself in these cast of characters, we are missing so much. Actually, we're missing everything. Because one by one, first the disciples, then Judas, then Peter, then the religious leaders, and now Pilate, a government official, 
systematically saying, when confronted by Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, we know better than you. And we're going to decide against you. In essence, unbelievers. Unbelievers who do not believe in Jesus and do not believe in his words. And now the crowds, right? The common folks, the salt of the earth. Let's put it in their hands because they get it right. They're not going to be easily swayed. And besides, this is a pretty easy one. This is a no-brainer. However, again, when confronted with Jesus, they all decide against Jesus. And the shorthand of that is called sin. And every sin, every sin, God says, I package with a penalty, a justifiable penalty that you can't pay. So they didn't realize then that their biggest problem in their life did not exist outside of them, but it was inside of them. And it took Jesus being set right before them to make it known about them. And loved ones, the same is true for us. Our biggest problem, the thing which separates a man or a woman from God, which alienates us from God, is not caused by others but it's caused by us. You see, every one of us in this room, beginning with myself, we are guilty of something, many things before God. And God is the only judge because he's the final judge. And if you think about it, in our current information age, it may get worse because our information age reveals every person will have some, if you would, data on them to say, you're guilty. Hopefully not, you know, guilty of civil law, you know, robbing banks and things like that. But we're certainly guilty of God's moral law. Whether we write it with pen or we write it with intent in the heart. We're guilty. A few months ago, maybe a month ago, the Oscars, which I like to watch. If you were keeping in touch with them through before it started, they couldn't find a host. Remember? They couldn't find a host because everybody said something bad or offensive either five months ago or five years ago or ten years ago, and they just needed to post it online. A record of sin. You're guilty. You can't be the host. You're guilty. You can't be the host. No host. No host. And this is so terrible because there's no substitute in that world to take the penalty. There's no substitute, if you would, in social media and in our culture. In Christianity, we have a substitute. I mean, the whole thing is built on a substitute. Social media and culture, if the crowd says you're guilty, you can lose your job, you can use your reputation. If if you're a celebrity, contracts canceled, events canceled, you're an outcast, what you've done is unforgivable. That's what they say. It's unforgivable. But is it? And as you think about it, surely religious people in the crowd in Mark 15, God-fearing people, Surely they'll get it right. Which takes us to verse 6. If your Bible's open, you see it there at the feast. First point. So apparently what we have here was an occasion which gave rise to the custom wherein the crowds could pick a prisoner to go free. And this would be, of course, good for the prisoner. It would be good to the crowds or pleasing to the crowds. And, of course, it would keep the peace. Now, concerning the people in the feast, we just need to know who's there. And first is Pilate. Remember, Pilate, we spoke a little about him last time. He represents Rome. We used secondary sources to know about him last time. Let's use the Bible. This is what you need to know about Pilate. Pilate was very proud. Verse 5, he was amazed at Jesus' non-reply. However, in John's Gospel, chapter 19, John records for us what Pilate said after that. 
because Pilate was very, very annoyed at Jesus. Listen to what he said. You won't speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Well, that's personal pride. Don't you know who I am? But remember Jesus' reply. His reply was, don't you know who God is? Because you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you from above. Pilate was proud. Pilate was also vicious. You can read about this in Luke 13. On one occasion, he mixed the blood of the Galileans with the sacrifices they were making. Now, how vicious is that? And it wasn't enough that they were dead. What did he want? He wanted to make them deader? Viciously inhumane. Proud. Vicious. He was also shrewd. You see that in verse 10? Again, he understands the political mojo that is happening here. The Sanhedrin. How petty. Petty religious people. This is a thing that is getting you so on about Jesus, you're jealous? I mean, is this a competition? Is this a pageant? We're talking about a man's life here. He was shrewd, though. Pilate used that or tried to use it to his favor. Fourthly, he was a people pleaser. Indeed, he needed to be thought of well by those around him and to be held in high esteem. It's interesting that that never worked for Pilate in his political career. Just a few years after this, Pilate will commit suicide. He'll never move up, if you would, the ladder of success. He always wanted to satisfy the crowds. He gave in to them. Pilate had it right about Jesus. Verse 14, you see it there? What crime has he committed? He just couldn't follow through. Fifth, Matthew tells us that he was superstitious. He was so superstitious that he paid attention to his wife when she sent a messenger to him, and this is what she said, Matthew's gospel, have nothing to do with that innocent man. Interesting, she said innocent. For I have suffered terribly in a dream today because of him. So she sent the message. She knew Pilate would do something. Sixth, finally sixth, Pilate was trying to attempt, attempt the impossible. And the impossible was trying to hold a position of neutrality when confronted by Jesus. You can't do that. That's Pilate. Now verse 7, Barabbas, he's also at the feast. Verse 7, a man called Barabbas, you see this in your Bible, was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So Mark tells us he was a prisoner. Matthew also tells us he was notorious. It meant that the people in the city knew his name. He stood out in relationship with the people, specifically with Rome, because he opposed Rome. But he wasn't like a Robin Hood because John tells us he was actually a robber. A robber. So he wasn't a hero. He was tarnished. He had kind of a soiled reputation. He was a thief. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was crucified between two what? Yeah, thieves. Barabbas was more than likely headed towards a crucifixion. He had no speaking part, yet his freedom is going to be purchased by the death of an innocent. So you imagine yourself waking up one morning guilty and headed to death. But before lunch, you are set free. Because someone put themselves in your place. If you're a Christian, you know exactly what that's like. Praise God we know what that is like. So there's Pilate, there's Barabbas, both at the feast. Now the crowd. And the crowd, they're pretty easily swayed, aren't they? It makes me think in literature, a lot of times the crowds don't always come out as very good. Especially older literature. 
And some of you may remember that we made the point that when Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem, that probably wasn't the Jerusalem crowd. It was more like the out, people who lived in the outskirts. If that's true, and the longer I study my Bible, I'm pretty sure it's true. It makes sense in light of Jesus' words because there was a time when Jesus was overlooking the mount of Jeru- overlooking Jerusalem on a mountain. This is what he said. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned these, those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, and yet you were not willing. In other words, God sent you messenger after messenger after messenger, and one by one you killed them. And here it's, verse 11, the collective wisdom of the crowds. But they're no match for the religious authorities. Verse 11, do you see it? Stirred up the crowds to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What's that all about? Two things come to mind. One, if Jesus was so clearly guilty, why the lobbying of the crowds? I mean, they knew themselves as religious men. They weren't politicians. Why, why are you doing this? Secondly, the word stirred up in the Greek is a word picture. It's, it, it's meaning like you're moving to and fro. You're trying to shake up things. You're trying to agitate things. If you like, you're working the room. Rumors. False accusations. Taking Jesus' words out of context. He's a blasphemer. He said he would destroy the temple. Agitating, stirring, trying to to move them away from the truth and get them to believe as they do. This will not help, but I need to say it. A couple of years ago, my family and I went to the local production of The Music Man. So if you know the the show or the movie, it's just one of those keepers that's really good. And one of my favorite scenes is when the music man, he's trying to stir up trouble. You remember that scene? I'll try to do it right, but here it goes. You, you got trouble right here in River City? Trouble with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. Remember the pool tables were in the city and everybody's like, oh, the kids are going to go off the deep end because they're playing pool, right? That's the Sanhedrin. We've got trouble in Jerusalem. This guy's nuts. He's going to bring you all down. He says he's God. What are you going to do? How are you going to decide? If you've never seen the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, black and white version, please see it. It's a keeper. Because there you'll find the collective power of the press attempting to destroy the good reputation of a good man to darken the, the um, impeccable integrity of Mr. Smith by the press lying to the masses agitating, stirring them up. Or how about this one? This is kind of low level with the gossiping group working the phones. Did you know what they did? They are so bad. I heard them say this. Working people. Again, if it's so obvious, why the politicking? Why the agitating? Why do you have to work the room? All right. There's Pilate. There's Barabbas. There's the crowds. And of course, the Sanhedrin. I don't want to say anything other than this. How sorry is it for those who claim to speak for God? Those who say they know God are fueled. See your Bible, verse 10? They are being fueled primarily by jealousy. Of all the things, jealousy of Jesus, and they are prepared to let a whole host of other people be caught up in their devilish plan. Terrible. Utterly selfish. You guys were supposed to be shepherds of the flock. In actual fact, you are wolves dressed up as shepherds. Finally, there's one person left. He's at the feast. Since verse 5, he hasn't said a word. 
It is Jesus. And his presence permeates the entire scene. He's hearing all of this. He's hearing the cries of the crowd, the religious leaders. He's hearing Pilate. And yet, he is steadfastly continuing to offer his body up as a sacrifice needed for sin. And so in a few hours, he's going to cry out, Father, forgive every one of them. They don't know what they're doing. You want to say, what kind of love is this? And if you're into the story, you're saying, what is that? I can't do that on my best day. No more, let me say it like this, no man was more loving than Jesus Christ. And yet, even his love made people angry. Now, you need to think on that, Christian. You know, all we need is love. That's the Beatles. It's not the Bible. All I have is Christ. That's the Bible. The people at the feast are behaving badly. And here's my suggestion. If you think that you're not represented in some kind of a metaphysical way, then we have much to learn about ourselves. And we still have more to learn about Christianity. That's the people at the feast. Secondly, then, the decision of the crowd. Two questions come up. Question number one, verse nine, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? That's Pilate. Question number twelve, or number two, again, verse 12, Pilate, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Let's take them quickly in turn. It's the first question, verse nine, should I release Jesus? It's hard to know exactly what Pilate is thinking. I mean, by saying king of the Jews, is he just trying to annoy the people? Or maybe this, Maybe he expected Jesus to be released because this is pretty low-hanging fruit, you guys. This is a no-brainer. In relation to good versus bad, innocent versus guilty, Barabbas versus Jesus, this would be like, okay, crowds, what do you want? Do you want a $1 bill? Or do you want a trillion, trillion, trillion dollars? Take your pick. Are we not blind by nature? Are we not hostile to God by nature? Doesn't, that Mark, doesn't Mark just portray that perfectly? I imagine Pilate was thinking, what's going on here? They're religious people. He's a religious guy. He, they know he's innocent. He's nice. They're supposed to be nice. But all I want to say is that oftentimes it's been my experience that religious people are the very ones who have the most animosity towards the story of Jesus and his grace. And they have a ridiculously difficult time to apply grace and to forgive other people. It's the religious people who cry out for holiness, have, have devised some kind of man-made religion which, you know, keeps your toes to the fire. Oftentimes, they're the ones that are most opposed to Jesus and his grace. And I can promise you, there's no lasting joy in that. I mean, all it is is do better, be better, do better, be better, do better, be better, be be better, sorry, as if they were the captains of morality. Never able to find that deep rest and that deep satisfaction that only Jesus by his grace can give. Now, I want you to know that Jesus is very, very interested in your personal holiness. He's so interested that he begins... By giving you his. Hmm. Good. He's so interested in your personal holiness that he begins by giving you his. So when a person picks and chooses what they want to believe and reject the rest, i.e. religion, how can they ever have a God who's able, they are able to contradict? 
excuse me, how can they ever have a God who will contradict them? That they will allow to contradict them. Someone said this week, when, you, when we scratch the surface of our idols, we will find a mirror which simply reveals our true God. Hmm. So among all the lost souls of hell, what, which, which might be represented in this scene here, or anywhere for that matter, there is not one person who can say, I went to Jesus and he refused me. But sadly, there's going to be a whole host of people who say, Jesus was set before me, but I refused him. So what we have in the decision of the crowds is what John says in his gospel. Remember the prologue? Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He's right there. He's one of them, and they didn't receive him. Peter who was saved by God's grace. This is post-Pentecost, Acts chapter 3. He's preaching a gospel sermon, and he's preaching to his own people. Listen to what he says, Acts 3.12. Men of Israel, a Jewish group, his own people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are a witness of this. Did you get that? You, 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 you did this, people of Israel. One of your own, you did it. That's the first question. Should I give you Jesus or Barabbas? Their decision, just give us Barabbas. Second question, verse 12. What shall I do with Jesus who you call the king of the Jews? It's a pretty practical question, right? Pilate's like, I can only release one. You say, Barabbas, okay, fine, so what about Jesus? What, what am I going to do with Jesus? I, I, I need a crime here. I need something. So it's practical, but it's pretty much the most important question a person can ask. What are you going to do with Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What am I going to do with Jesus? Jesus would say, like, either you're for me or against me. There's no halfway. Either this is all true or it's fabrication. Either this is history or it's like delusional hoo-ha. And Jesus says, you can't plead the fifth with him. Because pleading the fifth is the same as saying no. And he says, don't say, well, just give me, don't, no waiting. Now, right now. Because you don't know what's going to happen when you walk out the door. And isn't that ultimately the narrow road that Jesus spoke of? I mean, because the story of the Bible is we haven't loved God with all our hearts. We haven't kept the commandments. We haven't pleased him. Instead, we pleased ourselves. Therefore, all of us in this room are justifiably condemned. So what's the narrow road? Well, ultimately, there's only one way to be made right. There's only one way to be put right, to become clean and unblemished, able to be God's son or daughter, adopted, and stay that way forever. And that one way, that narrow way, is accepting the free gift of God offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. So the question is asked, the crowds decide, verse 13, crucify him. To which Pilate asks rightly again, what has he done? Pilate has it right, but again, he doesn't have the will to see it all through. Listen carefully. Instead of asking himself, what is the right thing to do here? By way of principle, he asks for himself, what will please the greatest number of people? That's pragmatism. Falling prey to the lowest common denominator of mob opinion just to preserve his position just to keep the crowd at pay, at least for now. And so what we see 
in the feast, in Pilate, in the Sanhedrin, in the crowds, is they're all playing off each other to all their own ends except Jesus. Do you understand that? They're just playing with each other except Jesus. And I hope that the injustice of it is, is felt by you. I mean, the familiarity can dull it, but why should it? I mean, this is not right. Innocent is being punished. Guilty is being set free. That's not right. What is happening here? Well, this is what is happening here. Peter puts it succinctly. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Is that the only way to God? Because that seems kind of narrow. Yeah, that's the only way to God. Christ for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. There is injustice here. But this shows me that there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. In fact, I want to say it like this. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in the whole world. And the terrible thing, the terrible thing is that the crowd, the people with all the evidence set right before them, a conscience in them, they choose so poorly. Crowdsourcing, just collapsing under the influence of the Sanhedrin. I'm going to stop here. But let me just tell you how I ended, almost ended. So I was thinking, is there a hymn anywhere that, that has this sing sung? Because this is a really, really important sing. And I'm not so much talking about the death of Jesus and stuff like that. It's like what the people in that scene were doing. And I had to look really, really hard. And I found one. It was written in 1830, a German, Johann Hermann. I'm just going to read you the first verse. This is the title. Ah, holy Jesus, who have you offended? And this is what it says. Ah, holy Jesus, who have you offended? That we to judge thee as having in hate pretended? By foes derided, by your own rejected? Oh, most afflicted. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon you? Alas, my treasonous heart, Jesus, has done this to you. The slave has sinned, and the son has suffered for our atonement, while we nothing heeded. In other words, we didn't have anything to offer. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. The last point's a little longer, but I can say it like this. What's the message of the cross? Barabbas, who should die, is going to have his place taken by an innocent man, Jesus. That's the story of my life. And I hope I never get bored of hearing that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. And at this moment, God, we plead his righteousness to cover our sin. And we rejoice in his obedience. And we thank you that his obedience will always be ours. And we thank you that our disobedience, oh, it's awful. It's terrible. And we seek your forgiveness again. We thank you that our disobedience will never be a match for Jesus' obedience. 
that where our guilt is most terrible, your mercy and grace more free and deep and, and unbeatable. Thank you, Father, for your incredible grace. Now may the Lord bless and keep us. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. And may you, Father, turn your face towards us and give us peace. Some of us need it bad. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.